And good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number nine in our discussion of the nature of Middle-earth. Uh, and so glad you could join us. Sorry I missed you guys last week, but of course I hope you I hope uh, all of uh, the Americans out there had an excellent Thanksgiving last week. Uh, and uh, uh, glad to be back here this week. Just a couple announcements before we begin. The first thing I wanted to uh, mention uh, is that uh, we have a, a special session. I'm hosting a special session next Tuesday that I wanted to bring to your attention. Uh, you have probably heard me talk about our Signum Academy Clubs program. That is the extracurricular program in language and literature that we have for kids. Uh, well, for young persons, right, uh, between about third grade and 12th grade. <clears throat> and we've got some wonderful sections right now of our clubs running uh, in creative writing and in uh, book discussions and in uh, uh, Old English as well. <clears throat> A section of kids, including my own son, uh, learning Old English. Um, so that's um, uh, a... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, anyway, it's been a lot of fun. But one of the things that we've been wanting to do, that we've been really interested to do with uh, not just our clubs, but our, our sort of our Signum Academy programming in general, is to connect more with homeschoolers. We feel like there's a, there's a real... We feel that we at Signum Academy have a lot to offer to homeschoolers, and we're trying to kind of figure out how best to do that. So here's what's going to happen. Um... On Tuesday, next Tuesday, the 7th of December at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, we're going to have a sort of open house uh, uh, for homeschool families. Uh, we'd like to have a discussion with homeschool families. This is designed to be not just like we're not just going to be doing like a sales pitch for the program that we have, though I'm happy to talk about the program that we have, of course. Um, but what I really want to have is a kind of dialogue with homeschool families about what what are your sort of your curricular and your extracurricular needs um, or, you know, what would you like to see? Um, because I'd like to see if there are some ways, because I believe there are, <clears throat> in which we can really help uh, homeschool homeschoolers and homeschooling families. Um, so we're going to talk, and I, I will say that everybody who attends this event, uh, we, 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 have, we have gifts for all and sundry. Uh, so we are going to be giving presents uh, to those who attend. Uh, just to thank you for your time and, and, and for coming uh, and helping us with this. So uh, it would be a big help if, uh, of course, if you yourself homeschool your kids, I'd love to hear from you uh, and for you to be able to attend this meeting if you could. Um, and if not, if you could uh, just sort of spread the word if you know other homeschooling families, um, I would, I kind of, we just, we'd love to hear from folks and ideally from a variety of folks, like a geographical variety of folks as well, just to hear from uh, lots of different perspectives so that we can best understand how we could, how we could help, how we could serve, uh, you know, that group, that population better. Um, but, um, Anyway, that's, uh, uh, that is what we're going to... Yes, <laughs> Frank, you literally are the target audience for this. Uh, absolutely. That's very true. <laughs> that's very true. Um, so anyway, uh, thanks for uh, letting folks know about that. That would be a big help. You can find this page if you go to the Signum University homepage and then scroll down a little bit. You'll see our upcoming events, and it's right there. Uh, and there's a Zoom link down there to register f uh, uh, to attend. It's just going to be a Zoom call. I'm not going to stream it or anything like that. Just a private discussion. Um, uh, but you can register for the Zoom session there and, again, share this page or share the link directly with folks, and that'll be fine. Uh, so, all right. 
Thank you, everybody. Um, we have um, we have launched officially now our space program. I mean, we kind of launched it before in the sense of uh, you know announcing it and and uh, opening registration and um, and stuff. And we've had a, an awesome response. It's been so cool to see the enthusiasm. Um, I mean, I was really enthusiastic about it, and I'm pretty convinced that it was going to be awesome and was really glad to see that uh, the the enthusiasm from so many folks. Um, we had sold, uh, I, as of Monday night, I was like, okay, I can't wait to announce this, that we've sold 111 tokens, which was really cool. We sold 120 now already, so it's uh, it's past the cool 111. Oh, not quite to a gross, you know, more than 111, less than a gross. Um, but anyway, it's been it's been so cool. Um, so yeah, we've got like 60 people who hold tokens, and we have um, I don't even know like 40 45 or so students who are. Uh, in, I keep losing track because we've gotten a couple last minute people who have jumped in uh, to our December classes. But our December classes officially started running this week uh, on Monday. So uh, you know our first ever space modules are up and going, and they've been uh, uh, they've been wonderful so far. Um, and as I say, we have like 45 students who are participating in those those inaugural modules that we've ever run. Um, we have announced, of course, our candidate modules for January. We'll be announcing our confirmed list for January at the beginning of next week on Tuesday on the 7th. The 7th of the month is going to be our announcement day uh, in general when we announce the confirmed modules for the following month. So that means there's still time. If you get tokens now, you can still influence that. You can still tell us you know, through our selection form that we send to, to token purchasers. Um, which modules you would like to do in January, and that will help us to decide which ones to uh, to confirm and definitely to run. So, it's been um, uh, it's been it's been very cool, and I've uh, I've been very happy to see it. Uh, so, hope that uh, folks will join the fun. And uh, thanks to so many of you who have uh, uh, you know kind of jumped right in. Uh, such a, a a marvelous crop of early adopters uh, in our space program here. Anyway, all right. Let us um, uh, let us jump back into the text where more math awaits. Footnote on the more math awaiting. There's quite a bit of math. There's a lot more uh, aging tables uh, here in the um, uh, in the section we're going to discuss here this evening. And I know I know that there are a lot of you who really struggle with this. Who really just don't share Tolkien's evident enthusiasm uh, for these calculations, right? And here's the thing that I want to say. I'll be saying this kind of thing again multiple times through the through the the discussion. But here's the thing that I urge you. First of all, it's fine. Like it's absolutely fine if you're not into the math. And I know some of you are. But if you're not into the math, then don't worry about that. Like, first of all, don't feel, like, don't feel guilty about that. This is, this is one of the things that gets, keeps people away from the Silmarillion. Not math, I mean. But this attitude, um, this feeling of guilt, right? When people get presented, in the, the story that I've heard so many times from people who attempt and fail to read the Silmarillion, um, what, I, what I would say is probably the second biggest reason for not finishing the Silmarillion according to my uh, unofficial research, uh, basically according to the, uh, the accounts that I've heard from folks again and again. Um, the biggest one is just 
expectations, like disappointed expectations, like finding out this was this was me when I first failed to read the Silmarillion when I was a teenager, um, which was finding out that there was another Tolkien book and being like, there's more. And then you read it and you're like, that's not what I was expecting. And then you just it's not what you were prepared for. And you kind of stumble and don't finish. Um, uh, anyway, so that's that's, I think, the most common reason uh, for people starting but not finishing the Silmarillion. But the second um, the second most common reason, I think, again, based on stories, you know, uh, anecdotal evidence, uh, but much anecdotal evidence collected over more than a decade, is that people feel like they have to memorize everything, right? Like they're being presented with all the, th- that whole, like, is there going to be a quiz on this mentality, right? Where you're given all these names of all these elves, they all begin with F, right? And and you're like, I, I can't, you know, like you get to the d- account of the great, um, you know, of the, of the journey, right? Um, uh, and the, you know, and the, the, the elf kindred start splitting off and getting new names and everything and people are just like, oh, my head, right? It's fine. Like, it's completely fine. The, the, um, the secret is to let it go. Just let it go. It's okay. You don't have to memorize everything at all. If you just let the Silmarillion kind of roll over you, right, and, ro- and just, just roll with it, um, rather than trying to stop and be like, I must, like, master everything. I'm supposed to remember every single one of these names. It's not like that. Um, just let the story happen, and the story will catch you up, right? You will get caught up in the story if you let it go, right? If you if you let it happen, and you will see these wonderful stories, and then you will begin to learn the characters, and you'll start to keep them straight later on. But that's okay if that comes later. Similarly with this, you might be reading this and looking at all of these mathematical tables and you might succumb to the temptation to just start flipping pages and be like, math, math, more numbers, more numbers. I don't care. I'm not interested. I can't, I can't get my brain around this, right? And it's, I totally understand that temptation. But here's the thing. Here's the... Uh, kind of solace that I would want to offer you like I try to offer solace to people who are having a hard time with the Silmarillion. Um, Don't sweat it. Don't feel like you've got to check his math. I know Chad likes to do that, but but don't feel like you have to do that. That's not um, what it's all about. I'm not saying it's illegitimate. If you want to check his math, it's totally fine. Um, He would love it, I think, uh, in lots of ways. But again, that's not the only way to read this. Um, you don't have to just kind of shrug it off as just math. Here's the thing that I would urge. I think that there is a very great deal that we can learn. Um, in fact, I think in some ways, these chapters, as we're watching him go through this stuff, work out, um, you know, watching this process of essentially seeing the new you know, the new version of the Silmarillion story that he was trying uh, to write, or at least attempting to begin, right? Um, As we're watching that unfold, not in narrative, right? It's not like seeing him write the whole thing out, um, because he's not getting that far, and he keeps rethinking it, right? But watching his process, and the questions that I would urge you to ask, and, and again, and you can answer these questions whether or not you even follow his math, right? Um... 
the questions that I, that I know I am most interested in and the kind of question I would urge you to ask are things like, what is he interested in? Like, what, what do we see that he is caring about? Why is he doing all of this math? Um, I think there are a few answers to that question. But, um, but what can we learn about how he thinks, the kind of story that he's telling, and what he is, like the kinds of choices, the kinds of priorities that he's making. And I've been talking for a few sessions about the sort of balance that he's doing between world building on the one hand, um, myth making on the other hand, and math on the other hand, or, or that is to say, essentially realism, right? Like he wants to... Um, uh, he wants to he wants to see that this stuff could all actually happen, right? So Michael, it is absolutely interesting to note the elements of the story that he's unwilling to move for the sake of easy math. Exactly. When you see him going back and saying, okay, I've got to, I've got to figure it again, right? And we'll see him. We'll see him do that. If we get through all my slides, which we won't, but if we get through all my slides, we'll see him change his mind like three times tonight, right? <laughs> Not even counting what we've seen in the previous what, like seventeen chapters we've already discussed. Um, the question is, and, and you know, again, this is not uh, this. It's not just because, you know, he's, you know, sort of compulsive about it. I mean, he's a little compulsive about it, but, but, but there's a reason. There is something that drives him back. And Michael, I exactly, I agree. I think that it's, um, it's very interesting always to see, because he, he's gone back and he's redone it, because he's something has like it's it it didn't work, right? It didn't work out the way he wanted it. Why not? What was it about the previous schema that he didn't like? Often it's a story point, like the Miguin issue we were talking about, you know, I think it was last time, we were kind of looking at the way he was trying to work through um, the, um, uh, the Miguin issue, right? How do you get Miguin, uh you know, to the age of consent before he, uh, you know, uh, falls creepily in love and commits treachery? Um, and then... And then, of course, we have we we see him very interested, very invested in Arwen and Aragorn, right? What what's he looking for there? What do we see in the kinds of choices that he makes there? So that's my pitch to say why you should care, even if you're like not the least bit interested in the math and you can't f force yourself uh, to read through his. Uh, numerical tables with attention, this is why it matters and what I think we can learn from it and why it's really interesting. So there's, that's, my little, um, that's my little preamble. Um, and uh, we'll, see, uh, we'll see how we do. But all right, jumping back in here. Um, this is the very end. Um, I know this seems like jumping back way far. Um, but um, this one little footnote we got at the very end of chapter 12. We spent a long time looking at chapter 12 stuff. Um, but this one popped out at me, and not just because it has one of those adorable little hands pointing at it, right? Though that always helps, too. 
An elf ages from 22 to 24 life years, i.e. 3,168 to 3,456 Loar in each age of Arda. Wait, what? The, there's a correlation? The, there's a limit? Do, ages of Arda work that way? Really? Okay. Good to know. Right? That surprised me. Right? That surprised me a lot. Now, I know that it's, I mean, it's observable that, you know, the second age has 3,000 years and change, and the third age has 3,000 years and change, and, um, you know, so, like, you can you kind of see the trend, but um, I didn't know it was a rule. And not only did I not know it was a rule, but of course I had no suspicion that it, I mean, look at the way that he's correlating it with um, the ages, the aging process of the elves, right? Based on this 144 to 1, unless it's 100 to 1, again, we got to, which, depending on which version of it we're looking at, right? Um, they're aging. This one is clearly 144, right? Um from 22 to 24 life years, which is a non-coincidental number, right? I mean, that's like a, you know, the age, age 24 is an important age, right? And we see those kinds, you know, a, a 24 is an important age, 48, 96, those are important ages too, like sort of milestones of when, you know, marriageable ages and how long the time of the children lasts and when your um when your uh Fea starts to eat your roa and all that kind of thing right um so i'm not sure what now i i also look at this as an observation not causative christopher i certainly i mean look it's, we we know for a fact having looked at this that the dates of, like, the length of the ages that we're familiar with um, correlated, you know, were, were established long before he devised the 144 to 1 aging uh, thing, right? Uh, I mean, we know that that's true. Um, so it's not that it causes it. It's just, um, yeah, no, I think it is an observation. I'm not exactly saying it's a rule. Um But it sounds like an observation that is being made a rule. You see what I mean? Like, it sounds like a pattern which he has observed and which he is drawing attention to and pointing, you know, his little pointy hand to it. Because he seems to find this interesting, important, and or cool. Right? Um... And it just, it just kind of, the potential implications of it. And again, I don't, I don't mean that I think that this is shocking in the sense that this is like, uh, this explains everything, right? Because again, it, it doesn't work that way, clearly. Um, but it, um, yeah, it, 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 it doesn't work that way, but it would have implications, moving forward, right? Even just sort of observing that, even just 
to say that the age of Arda is in some way in sync with the aging pattern of elves is really interesting. I don't know exactly what to do with it, but um, we've known, of course, it's been part of the lore for a while, that the age of the Eldar, you know, the age of the elves is coterminous with Arda. Like, the life of Arda and the life of elves, elves always has been, in some sense, linked, right? And that's why when I looked at this and, like, my eyes just widened and I'm like, whoa, whoa, okay. Um, you know what it made me think of? It made me think of how he's always been translating, so persistently translating elf age into human age, right? And that's the whole point of talking about life years in the first place, right? Why would they even call 144 years of the sun a year, right? Even analogically, right? Well, there's no reason except for the analogy to human years, to mortal years. Um, but this introduces an entirely new scale, right? What if, um, what if that is the 22 to 24 life years? That time of reaching, you know, of, uh, of, and I know growth years are not the same as life years, but still, anyway, that, that period of, of, uh, of, 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 of life existence for an elf, um, what if it's not ultimately linked back to humans, linked down to humans, but linked up to Arda itself, right? Um, doesn't it seem, can't you imagine him starting to do math on a completely different scale here and calculating the, age of Arda in elf life years now, right? Um, it's, anyway, I just think that it's, uh, it just opens up this, it's like a little crack in the wall, but if you like put your eye up to that crack in the wall, it's a fascinating <laughs> world on the other, on the other side of that. Um, but, um, Okay. Let's look at the new annals, because this is awesome, right? Anytime I get to do a table like this, I'm, I'm happy. Because he, he's going through and he's doing story again. And oh man, this story, right? This is uh, chapter 13, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, okay, so... Um, all right, the first Loa of Valiant Year 850 is first age one, Quendi Awake in the spring. 144 in number. Melian, warned in a dream, leaves Valinor and goes to Endor. All right. So a couple things that we're noticing here. So he's, first of all, he's writing a new set of annals. And the last time he wrote a new set of annals with like, you know, including the generational math, right, of how they were going across. Um, he's got to redo that, right? That was fun. That was exciting. But he's got to redo it because he's totally changed the myth, right? He's completely changed um, the story. Uh, because we've got the 144 to start up with now. Remember, so he's he's decided that's fine, right? He remember the old numbers that he was calculating for the Great March were premised on starting from 12 elves, right? 
but he's now worked out that he's got that myth, that story, right, of the three original elves and uh, they're finding their followers and stuff and and all that, you know, story. Um, uh, Emil and Tata and I can't, I'm forgetting the name of the other dude. Um, anyway, so he's he's got that and it's this makes him happy because it means you can get to a much bigger number sooner um and he wants there to be enough elves for the great march to fit his picture anyway clearly of the great march imin tata and enel that was the one i was forgetting imin tata and enel thanks thanks chad um okay so first we see him he we're redoing the annals because he is now through narrative play testing the new myth, right? And of course, he's changed the dates backwards. Also, eight fifty is when we're uh, uh, is when we're starting. Okay, but notice, of course, the first thing we get, second thing we get, the thing we get in the first little uh, entry here is a. Uh, meanwhile, what were the uh, what were the Valar and Maiar up to? Right, Melian warned in a dream leaves Valinor and goes to Endor. Why does she? Um, warned is a fascinating word. Um, she. Uh, um, she's warned in a dream. By whom? Luvatar. I mean, she lives in, like, the dream house, right? I mean, uh, I mean, she lives in Lorien, right? The place of dreams. So you'd think uh, that um, dreams would be plentiful there. Um, is, does it come from Irmo? You know, her dream? Um, I don't know. But, um, and I know, I, I know that Star Wars has totally taken over the name Endor. I, I know it's impossible to think of Endor without picturing Ewoks these days, but Endor was, of course, the name of Middle-earth. Um, it's kind of ironic uh, when you think about the amount of uh, time that um, the amount of time that the Tolkien estate and others have spent trying to defend the trademark value of Middle-earth, right? Which, of course, was very difficult and very and is very difficult and frustrating to attempt to do because Middle Earth is just a common phrase. It's not there's nothing unique about it. Um, it's a it's a very common phrase, and so it's been very difficult uh, to trademark and to defend that trademark. But of course, he had a perfectly trademarkable name that he used for Middle Earth, and that was Endor, right? But um, they didn't get on that trademark fast enough, <laughs> right? And so, ironically, the very trademarkable name uh, for the difficult-to-trademark Middle-earth uh, is a trademark now held by uh, the other most <laughs> difficult <laughs> to uh, negotiate with trademark holders. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Yeah, so, Michael, I have no idea what she, um, uh, what she wants what she's warned of and by whom. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Um, Kendall, you're right. Um, the Witch of Endor is going to probably sue them all anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. King Saul uh, is going uh, to... He, he doesn't own the copyrights anyway, but Samuel maybe, because he wrote the book, I guess. Um, but anyhow. Um, 
oh yeah, David, Middle Earth exists all over the place. I mean, that's that's why that trademark has been challenged so many times because you can't really maintain it. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Valiant Year eight fifty four. Five seventy six. Wait a second. What's going on there? Are we following? Why is it Valiant Year eight fifty four, but it's five seventy six? First Age Year five seventy six. Right. So the numbers inside the you know the second numbers there. That's those are the age, those are the years of the sun. Right. So the first age first age years are counted in years of the sun. So first age one is the first loa of 850. So by Valian year 854, it's now four Valian years later, so four times 144 um, and change, right? So we get to year 576. All right, no problem. So 500, 576, about the time the 12th generation of Quendi first appeared, Melkor or his agents first get wind of the Quendi. Quendi originally warned by Eru or emissaries and forbidden or advised, not yet to stray far. Adventurous elves did so, nonetheless, and some were caught. How's this story changing, based upon the stories that we've heard before? Quendi originally warned by Eru, or emissaries. Really? That? That's new. Right? That was one of the distinctions that we knew that Eru himself spoke to humans after they awoke, right? But we'd not gotten that. This is a this is not been the normal story uh, to this point, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, David, yeah, the sun already exists, but the first age is now being defined not as... So, in the old days, right, um, back in the flat earth days uh, of the Silmarillion material, the first year of the... The first first age one happened when the sun rose. All right? When the sun arose, that was the first year of the... That was the first year of the first age, right? It is called the first age of the sun, technically, in the old literature, i.e. the published Silmarillion, right? Um... But now, of course, since the sun is there from the beginning, uh, the first age, like, what event should constitute year one of the first age? And the answer is the awakening of the Quendi, right? So it does definitely go back very, very much further. Um, The first stage doesn't last all that long, uh, the first time round, right? But, huh, it is now. I wonder if it's going to last somewhere between 3,100 and 3,400-ish years to be about equal to 22 to 24 life years of elves. Hmm. I wonder. We'll have to see. Um, Okay. Anyway. Melkor or his agents first get wind of the Quendi. Quendi originally warned by Eru or emissaries. Who would be the the emissaries of Eru? I don't know. We're apparently not talking about the Valar here, right? It seems to be not Orame. Right, so he sent other emissaries? Who's that then? Did new Ainur descend into Arda at this point in order to be or did they not? Could they could they could they, you know, phone that in from the timeless halls? Um I'm I'm not sure. I, I don't know what that means exactly. Um 
And my suspicion, by the way, is that he doesn't either. Tolkien, I mean. Um, originally worn by Eru or emissaries. That sounds very, um, very hand-wavy to me, right? Like, he's, he's not... He's not worked that out, right? So he's just kind of waving his hands at that, and he's like, anyway, the, the important point is they get warned, right? But it's before Orame shows up, right? But notice what the warning is. Um, <laughs> a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Maybe it was. Maybe it was. Maybe it was Melchizedek himself. Who knows? Um, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, the important thing is that what they are told what is communicated to them is that they are either forbidden or possibly advised not yet to stray far. So that the story of the Quendi should begin with a ban, right? Which some might break at their peril, right? But begin with a ban. Eru directly communicating to them a ban. Do not stray far away from Quivianet. That is fascinating. Yeah, it doesn't have anything, uh, First Fish, to do with fruit, apparently, right? But exactly, you're picking up what I'm putting down there, right? I mean, this is, uh, we didn't have that element, that kind of thing. Um, a divine prohibition, which may or may not be broken, was not a part of the original story of the elves, right? That's a very new element. Um, and isn't it interesting that he seems now to be connecting, at least potentially, right? Connecting the capture of elves by Morgoth. Um, you know, the, 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 the capturing corruption, and by the way, I don't think orcification um, uh, of elves. As far, from, from what we've seen, now we'll have to see, uh, you know, as we continue to go forward, but it seems to me that um, uh, it seems to me that what we've already seen to this point has suggested that he is definitely not thinking of elves. Um, the, remember the stuff that he was talking about about the uh, that remember that passage was it last time that we talked about that passage where he says that the elves never as a people or individually worshipped Mel, uh, Melkor and stuff, um, and it, it did seem very much like that ruled out um, the uh, uh, the orcification thing. Um, but anyway, the um, this links, again, in the old story, published Silmarillion, elves are taken, but they're the victims, right? Like, elves in and around Quivianen minding their own business, were stalked and taken by the Black Hunter. And this was a, a source of terror. Uh, this, was, uh, uh, this was a source of, of, of both terror and sadness. But um, it um, had nothing to do with guilt, right? Here, there is guilt, or if not guilt, at least um, folly, right? They, they were advised... They, they told him not to go. They went. And look what happened, right? That kind of cause and effect, that kind of moral cause and effect, that, that sense of, of uh, potentially actual transgression, or at the very least, 
disregard for advice, right? To correlate that with the taking from milk, or again, we just, it's an entirely new dimension that is, you know, an entirely new picture that's being superimposed upon the birth of the elves here. In its way. Yeah, I think this is justifiable. This little paragraph introduces almost as radical a change to the early story of the Quendi as almost any that I have can think of in this whole book so far. Like, this is a big deal. This is a really big deal uh, that he's thinking about it in this way. Um, and, um, yeah, now I agree. It, it's, it is possible that it's... I mean, he, he's, he's debating Cecilia between forbidding and advising, right? Tolkien has not himself decided whether it's going to be uh, Eru forbidding them, placing a ban upon leaving, or whether he's just going to be advising them for their own good, which some adventurous ones don't listen to, right? Um, but even then... Um, and, 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 and it would be in that way, Cecilia, like a parent telling a child not to touch a hot stove. That's true. But if a parent tells a child not to touch a hot stove, and the child touches the hot stove anyway, which, by the way, they almost always do, um, uh, if the child touches the hot stove anyway and is burned, well, that child has no one to blame but itself, right? It's the burn that it receives after it has been told by the parent not to touch the hot stove. The burn that it receives ought to be a lesson to it, right? Hopefully it will learn from this experience and, and take that in a positive way. Um, but the pain that they endure from the burn they receive is now the, not only the logical, but the appropriate consequence of their actions, right? Never before has the taking of some of the elves by the shores of Quivienen being treated as a consequence of their actions, right? Um, you know, a result of them doing something that they should have known better than to do. You see what I mean? That's why I think this is such a big deal. Um, anyway, okay. Well, let's keep going. Four more years later, or uh, a.k.a. 500 years later, um, uh, Valiant Year, age 58, or 1152, First Age, shadows of fear begin to dim the natural happiness of the Quendi. They hold debate, and it appears that already some hearts are overshadowed. Younger elves, who never personally heard the voice of Eru, doubt the existence of the Valar, of whom they heard from Melian? They do not waver in allegiance, but in pride believe that their mission is to fight the dark, and ultimately to possess the world of Arda. This heresy, though driven under at the finding, is the seed of the later Feanorian trouble. Holy cow! Holy cow, there's now a heresy at Quivienen, which is the seed of the later Feanorian trouble. I mean, whew. Okay, okay. I, yeah. Like if I weren't sitting down, I'd have to sit down. This is huge. This is huge. Shadows of fear begin to dim the... Na I'm just reading it again because it's so big, right? Shadows of fear begin to dim the natural happiness of the Quendi. This is after almost 600 years of apparently adventurous elves either disobeying the ban or disregarding the advice of Eru, straying far and being caught. So they have, conf 
They've been confronted by evil and by suffering. And their natural happiness is dimmed. And there are shadows of fear. They hold the bait, and it appears that already some hearts are overshadowed. Some hearts are overshadowed. I'm not 100% sure about the... Oh, yes, and you're right, uh, Starwall may be being caught. And it's not to say that 100% of the adventurous elves were caught. Um, anyway, that word, overshadowed, seems very important. I'm not sure I completely understand it, but it seems very important. Um, they hold debate, and it appears that already some hearts are overshadowed. Overshadowed with fear. That fear now, what, run, rules them? consumes them in some way, right? That their their hearts are not right anymore. Um, their wills, perhaps even in some sense, have been overtaken. Um, I'm not really sure exactly what that means, but the, the fact that it only appeared in debate, like they had, they, they discussed this explicitly, right? They hold a debate. And in their discussion, it comes out somehow that some hearts are overshadowed. The fearfulness is more serious than it appears many of them thought it was. So then there's these younger elves. These are our proto-heretic elves. Younger elves who never personally heard the voice of Eru. So to them, the voice of Eru... Um, which, by the way, notice we've jettisoned the emissaries already. I think. Right? Unless Melian is an emissary, because we're going to get to her again in a second. Younger elves who never personally heard the voice of Eru doubt the existence of the Valar. Who told them about the Valar? Apparently Eru, the voice of Eru, because it's those who did not hear it personally who doubt the existence of the Valar. Do you think that those younger elves who doubt the existence of the Valar also are ones who have their hearts overshadowed? Is that a symptom of having your heart overshadowed, do you think? It seems likely that that would be that that would be the case. Um, that being overshadowed by fear, they doubted the existence of the Valar? The Valar, there can't, there, 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 there aren't any Valar. There's only the enemy. There's only the Black Hunter. We are very afraid. We are here. We are alone. You say you've heard Eru. You know, you've heard from the One, but we haven't heard from the One. And we don't believe that there are guardians loyal to Eru who are protecting us. Because we've, we've never seen them, right? But apparently Melian has stopped by and Melian herself might also have told them. So they've met somebody. Melian. First of all, Melian, it's Melian now, not Orame, who finds them first? That by itself would have blown my mind. Right? Even <laughs> taken out of this heresy context. Right? But, okay. They do not waver in allegiance. They do not waver in allegiance to Eru. Because remember, there are limits to this heresy thing. If that, you know, they're still good people thing is going to be true. Um, saying that they never worshipped Melkor. Um, 
then they can't waver in their allegiance to Eru completely, right? But in pride believe that their mission is to fight the dark and ultimately to possess the world of Arda. So the form that this takes, they're overshadowed with fear, they begin to doubt the existence of the Valar, and so their conclusion is, it's up to us. I don't believe there are any guardians. We are the ones who have to possess the world. This is heresy, but it's, um, it could be worse, much worse, right? They're not submitting to the dark. So how do they do this? Like, what does it mean? If they're going to doubt the Valar, right? So if there's going to be this, um, grounds for doubt, right? This could, I was about to say bad blood, but that's not exactly true. Um, between them, between the elves and the Valar. How does that not lead them to waver in their allegiance? Because, of course, as uh, uh, Kendall, as you were saying before, it sounds very Numenorian, right? It sure does, doesn't it? Right? And, of course, the Numenorians um, wavered in their allegiance at the end, right? There was some, he- there was some hardcore wavering going on uh, at, the end of, uh, at the end of Numenor. So... Um, how, does the, how do those two things work? How do you doubt the Valar but not waver in your allegiance? Answer, pride, the elevation of self, right? Your mission is to fight the dark. It is up to us. We have to take matters into our own hands and possess the world of Arda. Arda should belong to us. We're not going to concede it. We're going to fight against the fear. And the only way to fight against the fear is to take up arms, Right, and we will possess Arda, and when we possess Arda, then everything's going to be okay. Which, unfortunately, is pretty much what Melkor said in the first place. But yes, yeah, so that is a heresy, um, though driven under at the finding. So this heresy dies down when the Valar shows up, because it's kind of hard to maintain that I don't believe in the Valar when Orame comes riding in. Right, um, so. Okay, so it gets driven under. It, it kind of dies down. But it's the seed of the later Feanorian trouble. So when Feanor makes his speech and rebels against the Valar, he is giving voice to a current which has been present. This sentiment which has been, um, you know, kind of simmering, belo- lurking below the surface among the Elds, the Eldar, for a while. Notice, by the way, the other thing that this, um, the other thing that this suggests, or the other thing that this would seem to explain, um, it's not the seed of Feanor's ideas; it's the seed of the later Feanorian trouble. Why is there Feanorian trouble later? Well, because of Feanor, yeah. But guess what? It's not all Feanor's fault, right? Um, the kinslaying would have gone very differently if Feanor had been by himself, right? Um, not saying he wasn't capable of slaying a few kin single-handedly, but the only reason the kinslaying got so far out of hand is that he had a whole bunch of people following him, right? The Feanorian trouble is not just Feanor's movement, it is the fact that they followed him. And this begins... To offer an explanation for that. And I have to tell you, 
I find this a very interesting and in its way even more satisfying explanation than we're given in the published Silmarillion. Why do they... I mean, okay, they were, you know, besotted as with wine and, uh, and more briefly. Except it wasn't that brief unless you get drunk for decades at a time, right? Um, because it lasted for several valiant years, right? Um, so even in the old system, it took them like 10 years before between the speech and the kinslaying. So um, that's a, a bit of hyperbole on... Uh, oh, who is it who says that? The words of Fel Fanor, right? Besotted with wine and his briefly... Who is that? That's not Ignor, is it? Or, I mean, Angrod, right? Um... Is it Angrod? That's not Angrod's speech, I don't think. Um, maybe it is. I can't remember. Somebody look it up and tell me, because it's, it's going to bother me now. Um, but anyway, um, we're not... In the published Silmarillion, we're just told how persuasive Feanor is, right? Um, and and he, he, he is. Like, this would, doesn't take anything away from that. But the idea that he is... He succeeds so well in persuading the Noldor because this was this notion that it's their mission to fight the dark and ultimately to possess the world of Arda. That that notion never truly dies. That that concept is floating around and that some, especially the young and feisty, find it very attractive does a lot to help explain why people like Galadriel listened. Um, it is Angrod to Thingol? Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Thank you. God, I wasn't totally crazy. Uh, yeah, okay. Right in his speech to... Right, not in his speech to... Um, uh, to... Yeah. No, that's right. Okay. Good. Good. Um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, let's keep going. More, more anal stuff. 865.44. 2060, so it's already 2,000 years of the sun into the first age. Melkor seeks to attack Orome. Orome informs Manwe. Tolkas is sent. Okay. Um, hang on a second, did I miss something here? When was the finding? Did I skip the finding? Maybe I skipped the finding. I probably did. Okay. Anyway, Orame then comes and finds them, right? Melkor seeks to attack Orame. Orame informs Manwe. Tolkas is sent. I just... Tolkas is the best, right? I, can we all agree? Tolkas is the best, right? So he, sen he sends his heavy. Or Manwe sends his heavy to beat off Melkor, uh, allowing Orame to... Uh, rally the troops over there. Okay. Um, four years later, of the sun, four years of the sun later, leaving guards, Orome returns to Valinor. Okay, so Melkor is attacked. Orome has called for his reinforcements. Uh, uh, Manwe sends the one-man uh, reinforcement, Right. And Kendall, you're right. He obviously he needed a tank, right? Orome is going to do DPS while uh, while Tolkas tanks. Clearly, uh, I agree. Um, 
But um, but then four years later, he leaves. Orame leaves and goes back to Valinor, probably because Tolkis has things under control by that time, right? So 2066, two years later, Orame reports, Council of the Valar. They resolve on behalf of the Quendi to make war on Melkor and begin to prepare for the great struggle. 2066 is the year of the First Age in which this is happening. So the war on Melkor is, we're deciding to do it in the year 2066 of the First Age. It's a long time. Okay. Uh, they begin to prepare for the great struggle. They debate what is to be done with the Quendi since they fear Endor will suffer great damage. Okay. Ah, uh, thank you, Greg. I did skip it. Uh, 864 was uh, uh, when Orame finds the Quendi, which was only in 2016. Um, so, uh, yeah, he's already been there for some time before Melkor attacks him. Um, so he's there for, what, 44 years before uh, Melkor attacks, right? Okay, good. Yeah, I thought I skipped a bit. Okay. Um, most of the Valar think they should remove the Quendi to safety, at least temporarily. Omo-in-chief, also Yavanna, is against this. It is not Eru's intention that they should reside in such a place, and could not or would not be temporary. He prophesies, this is Olmo, presumably, that once brought thither, the Quendi would either have to be sent back to their proper homes against their will, or would rebel and do so against the will of the Valar. That is a really interesting um, prophecy. Right? If you bring the elves to Amman, quote, temporarily, right? That is not going to work out because they're only going to leave one way or the other. They will either leave against your will or they'll leave against their will. There can't be any other way. And that is fascinating, right? Once you bring the elves here, they won't want to go back, except those that do. And the only ones that do, that will choose to go back, are going to go back against your will. Um, was the earlier pre-Elvish war against Melkor still in this version, Captain Button? No, no, it was not. Um, this is that war. This is the. This is. We're, we're talking about the chaining of Melkor here. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Uh, you'll remember that we were noticing that the we were trending towards um, we were trending towards the Valar being quite wrong to bring them to Valinor. Um, I say trending because that was, of course, something that Tolkien himself had been quite inconsistent on, or rather, to be a little bit more fair, had changed his mind about a few times. Uh, I know that many of you remember the very memorable line in Morgoth's Ring when we are told that any who say the Valar were wrong uh, to bring the elves to uh, Valinor speak with the tongue of Melkor, right? I mean, he's extremely forceful about about that point, right? Um, uh, there's that one version which tries to put the kibosh really hard uh, down on that um, on that idea, um, but um, but we were seeing 
we already have seen several examples of, uh, you know, other versions that he would, where it seemed clear that it was a worse and worse, <laughs> it looked like a worse and worse idea. Look at how he depicts it now, right? He depicts it now as a choice by the Valar to, like, they're worried. It's short-sighted, right? It's not wicked, right? They're, they're not being selfish. They're thinking, they're concerned about the safety of the Eldar here. Right, they're worried that because you know Endor is going to suffer great damage. We're we're going to go to war with Melkor, so we'll we'll beat Melkor off them, which is great. But we're going to wreck the place. We know we're going to wreck the place, right? Um, and so they might not be safe. So let's just do a temporary transportation of them, right, to safety. Who could object, right? Surely that's a good idea. But it's a short-sighted idea, as Olmo argues, and it's most of the Valar who believe that short-sighted idea, right? Um, and uh, Olmo says it is not going to happen that way, right? Um, notice also the change in annotation on the left-hand side. Um, we're now changing it from Valiant Year to Days of Bliss. Days of Bliss. Does this mean that the Days of Bliss begin now in 865.50? Or just that we're changing the annotation. I think it means days of like the days of the bliss of the elves. So like from the time that the Valar decide they're going to bring them to Valinor, that's like starts the days of bliss. But we don't count like it's not like that's not day of bliss number one, right? And then we're counting up from there because we're going to be using DB uh, for the uh, for the years hereafter on this table, but. Um, uh, it's um, it's still going to use the same numbers, 865, right? Valiant year 865 is what we're still talking about. Um, so therefore, since we're continuing to count up from where we were counting before, um, I think it's... Um, uh, it would seem that the days of bliss just mean the days of the trees, right? That was year one. 865 is counting forward from... When uh, the day when the when the trees sprouted, right? So it seems like it's recasting how we think of those years rather than starting a new era, as far as I can tell. But Michael, I agree with you. This still sounds like a lack of Estelle on the part of the Valar, which Tolkien said explicitly in one of the earlier versions of this that we read a few weeks back. Okay, then we get a few specific dates. 2072, birth of Ingwe, of the House of Emin. 2120, birth of Finway. 2126, birth of Elway. So we get them born in that order, right? But it's important to notice their births and that they get born within only, you know, within a relatively short time. Elway is born 66 years after the Council of the Valar. So they didn't even meet Orome the first time. Um, none of them do, because Orome leaves for Valinor eight years before the birth of Ingwe, right? So that's kind of interesting. All right, but we keep going. Valiant year 866, 1. 2163. So hang on a second. This is in relation to how old is Elway here? Um, 40, 37. Okay, he's 37. Loa, right? So he's still a little pip. 
Uh, Orame returns to Quivienen with more Maiar. Melkor becomes suspicious and guesses war is purposed against him because of the Quendi. During Orame's absence, his emissaries were busy and many lies circulate. The heresy awakes in new form. The Valar clearly do exist, but they have abandoned Endor. Now, why would they think that? Well, because Orme was away for 99 years, right? Having this discussion. Okay. Yeah, so um, Jen Artanis, the three brothers were original elves in the published Silmarillion. But he's done away with that for a number of reasons. We've talked about, he's talked about this in a couple of passages, so we've discussed this in earlier sessions, which you can go back and listen to. But um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a significant change. Okay. Um, all right, so... Um, uh, oh, yeah. And um, Tarlonio, you're so right about the emissaries thing, right? Now we're waving our hands in the direction of emissaries of Melkor, right? However... We have some emissaries of Melkor we can blame for this, right? Um, I, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of picturing that this is the first time that, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Anatar, uh, uh, you know, persona gets taken out of its packaging. You know, I think, uh, I think that he's, he's, uh, Sauron is really kind of working off the, uh, uh, working out the kinks of that one right here. Is kind of what I'm thinking. But anyway, okay. Um, back to the lies circulated by said emissaries. The heresy awakes in new form. The Valar clearly do exist, but they have abandoned Endor, rightly as the appointed realm of the Quendi. So the 99-year absence of Orome proves that they were right. See, look, it is up to them. Okay, so there are Valar, but they're absentee, so whatever, it's up to us. Right. So we always thought it was up to us. Then the shiny dude with the big horse comes and we're like, OK, um, here's the guy. But now we're, it's it's clear. Now it's clear. We were we were right the whole time. Um, this their realm is over there in the West. Our realm is here. Um, now they are becoming jealous and wish to control the Quendi as vassals and so repossess themselves of Endor. Oh. Oh, so this other race is going to oust them, is it? Right. Well, it's the Valar that's going to oust them this time, right? Are they being hemmed in, in a narrow place? Oh, yeah. I think so. I think they're being hemmed in a narrow place, right? Uh, they're going to be they're going to be taken out of the picture so that they can be removed from Endor so that the Valar can have it all to themselves. Now, this doesn't make all that much sense. Like, we're going to bring you to our homeland and share our homeland with you so that we can have your homeland all to ourselves and not go there. This is not a strong argument. But, anyway, the idea that those absentee Valar are jealous and controlling... Um, okay, I can see that. And again, we can certainly see how we're, we're laying the pre-Feanorian groundwork here. Finway, a gallant and adventurous young Quende. Uh, wait, hang on a second. How, uh, how adventurous and young is he? This is 2163. He was born in 2120, so he's 43. 43? 43? What is he, three and a half years old? Even if the growth years are 12 to 1. 
Come on now. For real? Okay. So, um, Finway, a gallant and adventurous four-year-old, direct descendant of Tata, therefore 25th generation, is much taken by these ideas. Less so his friend Elway, descendant of Enel, who is all of, what did I say, 37? He's three. So, um, not quite as wise as his four-year-old companion. Um, okay, okay. Um... But interesting, Finway, father of Feanor, is inclined towards the heretical ideas. Again, heretical groundwork being laid in and among the Noldor. Okay. Um, 2175, 12 years later, Orome remains for 12 years and then is summoned to return for the councils and war preparations. Manway, because they're leaping straight to war, those Valar, right? It's 2175. It's been, holy cow, look at that. It's only been, um, uh, what is it, 89 years since they decided to go to war. So um, they're almost ready. Manway has decided that the Quendi should come to Valinor. But on urgent advice of Varda, they are only to be invited and they are to be given free choice. So it's Varda who jumps in and says, whatever you do... Don't command them. Just invite them and let them choose. The Valar send five guardians, great spirits of the Maiar, with Melian, the only woman but the chief. These make six. So Melian leads a contingent of guardians, because Orme's left again, right? But they don't want to leave them unguarded. So they send six strong Maiar to protect them. Remember, we had this before. Right? The Maiar being sent to protect them while Orome was away. Remember when they settled down in the greater Lorien region in the earlier annals thing? Right? Um, and that's when the Maiar were sent before. Now the Maiar are being sent straight to Quivienen. Right? And they're going to protect them while, um, uh, while the war happens. And Melian is leading them. Okay. Okay. Melian's going to lead the contingent. But of course... The real excitement is who the other five are, right? The others were Tarindor, later Saruman, Oloren, Gandalf, Hravandil, Radagast, Plakendo, and Hymenar. Now, our Palakendo, sorry, our Palakendo and Hymenar, the two blue wizards, um, 100 bucks says they are. I mean, there are five of them. Right, <laughs> Melian leads her posse of five Maiar to go to Middle Earth to protect the Quendi against Melkor. Right, and they're, they're five. Yes, hundred percent. Right, hundred uh, percent sure that those are the five wizards later on. Right, um, and there's even a, 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 a Palando and Alatar and Palando are the names that are given in Unfinished Tales for the uh, the two blue wizards. Uh, so we even have the Pala there. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so... Cameo appearance by all five wizards. So Gandalf was there at Quivienen, helping to protect the elves while the battle is happening. Tolkis goes back. Tolkis has been there the whole time. He has? 
For real? The whole time. He's been tanking for more than a century now? Weird. Maybe he wasn't there at Quivienen. Huh. Anyway, okay. Orome remains in Quivienen for three more years. So he remains for 12 years, then he's summoned to return, and then he goes back for three more years. Okay, I'm a little confused about who's where, but that's okay. It doesn't matter so much. Um, yeah, you're right, Tarlonio. If Sauron was the emissary of Melkor, this whole, uh, you know, Gandalf and I would add, like, five wizards versus Sauron thing goes back a long time. Yeah, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. Okay, anyway, let's keep going. 2212. Wait a second. How, how long has it been? Long time. Uh, 37 more years. Orame sets out from Quivienen with the three ambassadors. Okay, so now we're now the ambassadors are finally they were they're not just kids anymore. So Finway is oh Finway's now eighty something. He's a middle school. No, he's still in elementary school. It can't be. This has to be. It can't be the twelve to one. It can't even be the ten to one, or he's still going to be eight. I'm trying to figure out what on earth aging scale he's using here. It's hard because there are so many of them. But um, is it nonlinear, JJ? No, it's certainly not nonlinear. Um, oh, JJ, that's fascinating. That, uh, um, yeah, that Galadriel will be essentially taking Melian's place in the Council of White Wizards, once the Astari become a thing. Yeah. Stephen, I can't think that that parallel is an accident. Galadriel and the White Wizards, and the Wizards on the White Council. Melian leading the Wizards on their little um, junket to Quivienen uh, in the First Age. Yeah. Yeah, that's a strong and important parallel. Um, okay. Orame sets out from Quivienen with the three mysteriously young ambassadors. These were elected by the Quendi, one from each of their kindreds. Only the youngest elves are willing. Ingwe, Finwe, and Elwe are chosen. Ingwe belonged to the 24th generation and was then 140 years old. Finwe of the 25th generation in 92. Okay, 92. Right, right, 2120. Right? Elway of the same and 86. Yeah. In other words, prepubescent. Even Ingwe at 140 is prepubescent. I mean, at 12 to 1, he's not even 12 yet. Right? I mean, do elves even get pimples by the age of 140? I don't think so. Not that elves get pimples. They probably don't. But, um... Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, uh, uh, Jen Artanis, that is my least favorite part of, um, that is my least favorite part of the idea of Melian leading this, uh, entourage of proto wizards, uh, to Quivienne, which I love in many other ways. Um, what I don't love about it is that Melway would already have met her, right? Um, you know, the idea of Elway already meeting her when he's a kid um, and, you know, the, and just her being around for that whole thing really kind of takes away from the sudden meeting later on. Um, but, um, yeah, <laughs> Captain Button says more of a school trip than an embassy. Uh, yeah, I guess. So, um, yeah, okay. I mean, I personally, I think that this proves that this must be one of the later schemes. What could it be? Three to one? Can't be one to one. I don't know. Give it up. Okay, 2113. Ingwe, Finway, and Elway arrive in Valinor. They are indeed dazzled and overawed, just as Elway predicted... Old Mo, yeah, Old Mo predicted they would be, right? Uh, Finway, with heretical leanings, is most converted and ardent for acceptance. He has a lover, Miriel, who is devoted to crafts, and he longs for her to have the marvelous chance of learning new skills. This is adorable, by the way. Ingwe is already married and more cool, but desires to dwell in the presence of Varda. I always thought that Ingwe was more cool. Elway would... I'm just kidding. That's not what he means, and I know it. Elway would prefer the lesser light and shadows of Endor, but will follow Finway, his friend. Okay, so Finway was first trying to convince Elway to come along with him into the heresy, right? But now he's a true Valinorian believer, right? Now he is, like, 100% for Valinor and can't wait to go home and tell his girlfriend, right? Um, who is just going to love this place, right? Okay. Um, Kendall's wondering how old is Muriel? Probably about three. I don't know. I'm just kidding. Obviously not. Like, I don't know. I don't know. All this math with aging and I still can't figure it out. Um, okay. Ingwe is cool. He is more cool. So he, he... And that's by itself interesting. I always had the general impression that the Vanyar were the most gung-ho, the most devoted of all of them, right? Um, and he does desire to dwell in the presence of Varda, but he's chill about it, right? He's not, like, all freaking out like Finway is, right? Um, he's very, uh, very mellow, very mellow. Um, okay. Uh, and Elway, not really feeling it. Not so much, anyway. But, you know, for Finway's sake, he's going to go, because Finway is, like, completely gaga about this. 2222. They remain nine years, for Ingway and Finway are reluctant to hurry away. Okay, so Ingway is not so cool as all that, right? Yeah, exactly, Chad. It does sound like he doesn't want to tip his hand on his excitement, right? He's just, uh, he's above being quite so exuberant as Finway is apparently being, because he too is holding out, right? Um, they don't want to hurry away, but they do hurry away after a mere nine years. 
Then one year later, again, so it apparently takes a year for them to go each way, uh, the ambassadors return. Great debate of the Quendi. A few refuse even to attend. Imin, Tata, and Enel are ill-pleased and regard the affair as a revolt on the part of the youngest Quendi. Who are these whippersnappers? To escape their authority. Oh, okay. None of the first elves, none of the original 144. None of the gross elves, as it were, except the invitation. Hence the Avari called and still call themselves the seniors. Huh. Okay. So the Avari, we've never had, ever had what the Avari call themselves. Right? Um, but now we know. They call themselves the seniors. Which I guess is cooler among elves than it is among people. Among humans. Uh, but, um, yeah. They're the senior circuit. Right? They're the originals. <laughs> and they probably do get discounts at Denny's. Chad, I assume. Um, but yeah, they call themselves they call themselves the, the seniors. Um, they have the seniority. All the rest of the elves, right, all of the Caliquendi are merely upstarts. Rebels, even. Rebels against their authority. Okay. All right. So, there's more. Um, but I could have talked about every bit of uh, chapter 13 because of the you know of the table there because that was totally fascinating um, to see where this is going but um, but let's get back to the this is uh, the ambassadorial oratory here he, here he's uh, getting into a little bit more about this debate the ambassadors speak Ingwe speaks with great deference of the three fathers and especially of Imin he says it was a mistake that Imin, Tata, and Enel did not go themselves, for they could have exerted authority with judgment. Ooh, hear the deeply submerged burn in that sentence, right? Imin, Tata, and Enel are speaking against the elves going, right? In other words, they're exerting authority without judgment, because they don't know what they're talking about. But if they had gone themselves, they could have exerted authority with judgment. Um, uh, that's, um, that's, a, that's a really high-quality, uh, polite burn there. But since they sent him and his companions as their representatives, they should now, in spite of their youth, pay great heed to their reports and opinions. You should respect what we say because we are the ambassadors that you chose yourself, Grandpa. Right? Um, yeah, this is, he's on a roll. He thinks they have no conception of the riches and of beauty in Valinor. Did I mention that you are speaking of what you don't know? He asks Orome if it is still possible for Imintata and Enel to go to Valinor. Could we get a second embassy? Could we get a second opinion? Could we send Grandpa number one, two, and three? Um, Grandpa number one, two, and three is the perfect characterization of them, isn't it? As their names literally mean, one, two, and three. Um, can we send them to Valinor? Orme says, yes, if they will go at once. 
great because this is what I'd like. Now I'm the ferry service, right? Orme is now like running an Uber to and from Valinor, right? The three fathers are not willing. Okay. Um, this is the perfect conclusion to Ingwe's speech, right? If you would, go, I urge you, go yourself, right? Go yourself. You will see what we're talking about, right? But they're not willing to go. Hence proving everything that he said about authority or everything that he implied about authority without judgment, right? Um, Finway speaks similarly, but lays stress on the riches of knowledge and crafts in Valinor. Also, he says that the Quindi have only seen the skirts of the shadow and have no idea of its dreadful power or of the power of the Valar and do not realize what the war which the Valar are about to wage on behalf of the Quendi will entail to Endor. His speech is very effective, as large numbers of the Quendi who cannot conceive of Valinor's attraction are nonetheless frightened of what may befall them if they remain. So Finway, the super-enthusiastic and 100% converted, um, first, you know, fanboys about the riches of knowledge and crafts in Valinor, right? He just, he tries effusion... But he also tries fear. What we've seen of the shadow, this is just the skirts of the shadow. This is just the penumbra. It's not the full umbra. This is just the penumbra of the shadow, right? Um, you have no idea. Not only do you not know the riches and the glories that await us in Valinor, and boy, like, you just get me going on that, uh, people, but... Um, you don't even know what the shadow is. What we're dealing with here, the Valar, all of them, the good guys and the bad guys, are way greater than we um, uh, than we ever imagined. And that the majority... No, large numbers. We're A plurality of the Quendi... Um, who are not convinced, who don't go for a positive reason. They don't go because they want to go to Valinor. They go because they want to escape what they think is going to come. It's fear. Are, there, are their hearts overshadowed with fear? Is that what's leading them to go? Boy, this makes the whole trip to Valinor look like a really bad idea now, doesn't it? Elway says, I will go with my friend, but I do not choose for anyone but myself. Let all my folk do likewise. I do not see what harm dividing the kindred will do, and it cannot be avoided unless some are to be forced to do what they do not wish to do, to remain or to go. No doubt, indeed this is guaranteed, we or any who wish will be free to return to our homes when the war is over. Look at, look at Elway. How adorable is that? No doubt. No doubt. We'll, there'll, be so much, there'll be much coming and going between Valinor and Middle-earth, Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, no doubt uh, it's guaranteed. This is guaranteed. We've been promised that after the war, we can return home. So it's, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Just that thing that Olmo said would definitely not happen is totally going to happen. Right? It'll be, it'll be good. Um... Little side note. Little side note. Uh, I cannot help but point out. Um, 
in season three of the Silmarillion Film Project, when we were planning uh, season three of the Silmar of our Silmarillion Film Project, which is our theoretical uh, fake adaptation of the Silmarillion, what's a real adaptation, a fake production. Really planning a fake production is what we're doing in some film. Anyway, um, when we planned season three, season three was the one that began. No, sorry, season two. I'm thinking of season two. Season two is the one that begins with the awakening at Quivianon and goes through the darkening of Valinor. Anyway, um, the uh, uh, we were trying to figure out why Olway stayed, uh, and we decided. Or sorry, no, Kierden, Kierden and Olway. Right, we had Kierden and Olway, and their their decision Olway to set out and Kierden to stay by the shore, right? And the story that we invented, completely made up, by the way, before this book was ever published, was that the vision that they had was that they would each go to either side of the sea and they would establish harbors on either side of the sea with the hope and idea and plan that there would be coming and going, that Olway would help any to come home who wanted to come back, and that and that Kierden would be there to receive them and to enable others to go uh, afterwards. That they, they were, that that was the that was the vision that they had. Of course, it never panned out, right? And then, of course, Olway dies. But um, that was totally, totally, the story that we came up with in season two. And reading Elway's speech here, I was like, we totally nailed it. Just saying. But anyway, okay. Um, <laughs> I, could, I could not forbear to boast a little bit there uh, of our uh, our storytelling in Silm Film. By the way, little plug, Silm Film Season 6 starts tomorrow night. We're doing Season 6. Season 6 is Baron and Luthien. We're up to Baron and Luthien at last. We just did the Dagor Bragalach at the end of Season 5. Uh, so we're post-Dagor Bragalach setting the stage for Baron and Luthien. Season 6 is going to be the Baron and Luthien season. Super excited. Starting tomorrow night, 10 p.m. Uh, anyway, okay. Elway says, Also, we are a great company, the most given to wandering afar. Let many of us at least go with the safe conduct of Lord Orime and see what Endor is like and the sea. We need not pass the shores. And then there's a, a little parenthesis that says prophetic, maybe. Hard to read word. His great point is the vision of the sea. This moves the Lindar deeply. Okay, so from the beginning, according to this, um, uh, uh, from the beginning, according to this, the, um, the Teleri are, A, more moved by the sea than they are by the idea of Valinor, and B, never intending to go. Most of them. Even Elway himself is very plus-minus on going back to Valinor, right? He's like, let's entertain the idea. Because, hey, guess what? Orame is going to lead a guided tour across Endor, and that sounds cool, right? You don't have to get on the boat at the end of it, right? So, yeah, it's fine. And it'll all be good. Um, we, uh, we don't need to pass the shores. We can... Uh, we can just go. And by the way, did I mention the ocean? The ocean is awesome. Exactly, Kendall. They're just going for the free samples. That's it. That's it. Um, again, notice how he is both freighting the idea of they're going to Valinor with 
portentous, with ominous portentous notes, right? Um, and making it um, more and more, it just seems to be making it more and more clear that staying in Middle-earth is what they really should do. We're meant to do, right? Okay, let's keep going. Okay. All right, chapter 14. Done with narrative. More math. If these factors are taken into account, it is possible to calculate with fair accuracy the increase of the Quendi from the date of their awakening until their finding by Orame 99 valiant years, 90 valiant years later, or any other date decided upon. The number of the Quendi, therefore, at about 106 valiant years after their awakening would have been about 57,500. So now, remember, as w- did you see the math in the background of that narrative we were just reading, by the way? Right. That narrative was the fruit of the math in a lot of ways. Notice him tossing out things like, well, obviously, Ingwei was the 25th generation. He's not making that up, right? We've, we, we, we can see the math supporting that several times, right? Um, his timelines, his dates, his generations, right? These are all things that he's now has the confidence of mathematical calculation to work on. Um, one of the things that we've been noticing several times is that one of his, um, one of those points, one of those things that makes him go back and reconsider either the dates or the aging scale or something. He's got to rework something in order to make the math come out. One of the things that the math has to come out to is he wants there to be a big enough crowd for the Great March. So by this calculation, he's got about 50, he's got, he's got 57,500 and he seems to be happy with that. So that's around the number that he's wanting. Somewhere between 20,000 and 60,000 is enough. If it's, if it's on the low end, he's getting nervous, right? Um, if it's on the higher end, you know, he, he's, he, he doesn't need more than that, right? Because then if it's on the high, if it's allowed to get up to even more, the time that passes in order to have that many generations is too much, right? So those are the two things that he's balancing as we, as we see. All right. More mythic math. Watch how he takes the, the myth that he wrote and applies it to the math, right? The companies, that is the three kindreds, but he's not calling them kindreds, he's calling them companies. The, the companies should still be in approximate proportion of 44 144 56 144ths, and 74 144ths. Why? Because of the story, remember? The 44, you know, Imin and his... Imin, Mrs. Imin, and, the, and their 12 followers... Right, Tata, Mrs. Tata, and their 54 followers. Remember that that's that's where the numbers come from, right? And he's saying that those proportions are still should still hold. Those proportions will still hold for the approximate. That's this gives him a mathematical key to approximate the numbers. How many Vanyar? How many Noldor? How many Teleri are there going to be? Okay, if we take the actual total to be 32,400, these proportions would be exactly 3,150, so 3,150 Vanyar, 12,600 Noldor, and 16,650 Teleri. But many of the Quendi will become Avari, say one-third of the total. We've seen that number before, too. 10,800. 
The marchers, or Eldar, then will number 21,600. One seventy-second of this is 300. Wait, why do we care what one seventy-second of that is? He's reducing his fractions, right? Notice all of the fractions of 144 are even. So, in fact, if you want to do the math in your head, it's easier not to do, 100 and, not to do 14 144ths, but 7 seconds. So if one seventy-second of it. So you divide 21,600 by 72 and you get 300. Now you just have to multiply that 300 by as many 70 seconds. So multiply it by 7 and you get 2,100 Vanyar. Multiply it by, um, what is it, 28 and you get uh, uh, 8,400 Nolar, you see? And then the Lindar, 11,100. Um, so, uh, so there you go. 11,100 Lindar or Teleri. This suffices. Barely. He's not super comfortable with this. Like I said, there's 21,000 marching elves. That's pretty much his minimum, right? He's a little uncomfortable with that, but it'll do. It'll do. Um, there will probably be increase on the march and greater increase in Valinor, but more would be better. You see it? See that he's still twitching. It's not right. It doesn't quite fit yet. He's going to have to redo them. We know. Without even peeking ahead to the subsequent chapters, we know he's going to have to redo this math. Right? Because um, this is a bare minimum. He, he, he wants more. He wants more elves on the march. More Eldar than 21,600. And to do that, he's going to have to redo the whole table again. That's why we get it so many times. Right? He's got to redo all that math. Because um, this is not just tweaking a few figures on your spreadsheet to make the sums, you know, the, the final results come out differently. Right? Um, you got to do the whole thing again by hand. Right? And that's what we see him do. Okay. So this is one thing that leads him to redo all that math again. Okay, and the time required is far too great. This is the other problem. 90 Valiant years equals 12,960 sun years. This is much too long for the Quendi to be left unguarded and at the mercy of Melkor and Sauron, the emissary of Melkor. In the original scheme, only 85 times 10, 850 years, was allowed. Right, so there were 85 years, there's 90 years of Valinor. There are 90 Valiant years now. There were 85 Valiant years before. But before, that was back in the ancient days when he wasn't even doing math. And uh, it was only, he was just doing 10 years per, right? So 850 years. And now they're supposed to take, it's supposed to take Orme almost 13,000 years before he stumbles on the Quendi, right? He's like, no, that's, um, that's too much. That's too much. Um, uh, yeah, Barbara's book house. That's great. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, she says it reminds me of a professor I had once who had us taking furious notes on one theory after another, only to finish the class with the statement, "But we must pour cold water on that theory." <laughs> yes, exactly. That's just what Tolkien keeps doing, pouring cold water on his own theories. Right. So it's too much time and not enough elves. Oh my gosh, it's wrong in every possible way, right? Oh, this is so unsatisfactory. If it's one or the other, then at least you've got something. But this is dreadful. This is dreadful. 
he's got barely enough elves and it took him 13,000 years to get that insufficient number of elves. Guess what that means? Time to change the system again, right? It's just not working out. Um, okay. All the elaborate calculations based on Olmier 12 to 1 years of growth and Coivier 144 to 1 are both cumbrous. <laughs> and I hear all the readers shout, Yay! You're right, Tolkien, it's very cumbrous. And in early narrative, Awakening and Finding, March, etc., quite unworkable. Also unlikely. The difference between elves and men is mainly in longevity after becoming full-grown. This depends mainly, again, on the difference in powers of elvish and human fear. As far as Hroar go, elves are of the flesh of Arda, and quite unlikely to grow at a rate wholly out of keeping with the rest of corporeal or incarnate creatures. The elvishness should therefore only appear when their Hroar reach prime adult and then do not for a very long time show any diminishment of physical youth and vigor. This will help with Baeglin. Elves should grow from conception at a rate comparable to human, but from maturity onward should slow to 144 to 1 rate. Diminution appearing, almost imperceptibly at first, at circa age 96. Okay, so this is chapter 16, right? This is further ahead now. And so notice what he's done. Remember, we have the three things, right? We have the realism of the math. We have the mythic story. And we have the world building, right? What are elves like? How do elves work? The whole 12 to 1, 144 to 1 thing that he's now dismissing, dismissing as both cumbrous and unworkable came from the world building. Right? When he was like, how are elves different from humans? Here's how they're different from humans. But the math disproved it. Notice that he almost reconciled the math and the myth. He almost reconciled it. But at the end of the day, it won't work. The story, it won't work. So it's got to change. But that means we got to go back to the world building, right? Got to go back to the third leg of that tripod there, right? Um, or I guess you could call it four legs. It could be a four-legged chair or four-legged stool if instead it, um, instead of, if you think of like the story, the overall narrative as the fourth part, separate from the mythic concepts, it's probably best. Let's call it the four. Anyway, um, He's got to go back to the world building because if he's going to change things again, he's got to convince himself. And I think that that's what we're seeing him doing here. Also unlikely, he says to himself convincingly. Yeah, yeah, it's unlikely that elves take 12 years to one year to grow. Yeah, yeah, despite the fact that I had to talk myself into that because at first I was going to make them 144 to 1 all the way through, right? and have them be pregnant for like 96 or 108 years or whatever it was, three quarters of 144, right? Um, remember, like way back at the beginning when he was starting to work out the world, when he was starting purely from the world building side, he was like, yep, 144 to one. Pregnancy lasts for 108 mortal years, right? 
Um, but he's kind of talked himself into shorter and shorter periods of time. And then the migraine problem came along and he talked himself into an even shorter period of time. And now he's like, no, but really, it's time to talk myself into the logical extreme, right? The logical extreme, which is, yeah, hey, the real difference between human and elves isn't in their bodies and how they grow, no, it's really in their fear, right? It's all about their spirits. Um, and the main difference is longevity after becoming full-grown. So you know how we can make this math come out much easier? Ditch 12 to 1. Just ditch it. Yeah, yeah. We'll just have them, we'll just have them grow 1 to 1 until they reach maturity. So for their first... 24 years or so, they grow at a one-to-one -one ratio. Then they slow down to the 144-to-one. Now we're cooking with gas. Right now we can have as many elves on that march as we want, right? Holy cow. All right. So, um, but of course, uh, the diminution is going to be appearing almost imperceptibly at first, circa age 96. Personally, I think that this is going to need to bring calculus into the equation. You're not going to be able to do this with arithmetic anymore if, in fact, the rate of growth declines at a... or, like, yeah, the rate, of, the rate of aging decreases at a steady pace over time between age 24 and 96. You're going to need to take the first derivative to really calculate the ratios. Um, and I don't think Tolkien has calculus. But I think he's not going to be too rigorous about that. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. So new synopsis. All right, here we go. Let elves remain in the room, in the womb for one loa. And all the elf women said, hallelujah, spring to spring. Both sexes reach maturity. So notice, by the way, he still wants it to be longer than humans, right? It was 108 years or whatever. And then it was only nine years, right? Um, and now it's down to one year, but it's still more than nine months, right? Okay. Um, both sexes reach maturity at 24 loar, and then slow. But puberty is different. In males, reached at about 21. In females, at 18. Nowadays, before these ages. Um, I have no idea what on earth that sentence means. Nowadays, before these ages, uh, yeah, no idea. Okay, the first elves awoke at twenty-one eighteen. Weddings were immediate. Later weddings in early years before the march, usually at twenty-four, twenty-one to twenty-four. So, the first elves awoke pubescent, right? So they were fully pubescent. But they were not quite fully mature. But they jumped straight into marriage because, you know, those impetuous first elves, right? Uh, but later on, they waited for a few years. And just a few years, mind, Loar, right? After puberty, before they get married. So, okay. Olmendi, growth years. One Olmen equals one Loa. One to one. Koimendi, life years, one Koimen equals 144 Loar. Okay. Kolban, Kolbanavie, gestation, 
Colbanavie equals one Ulmen. Fine. Ontevalier, which is a much more pleasant word than puberty. Uh, so Ontevalier happens uh, age 21 uh, for males. 21 Olmendi, female at 18 Olmendi. Um, Quantolier, maturity, 24 Olmendi. So you've got Ontevalier and Quantolier, which is first pu puberty, then maturity. Vinimetta, end of youth, 96, equals 24 Loar plus 72 Koimendi. So that's 10,392 years. In 10,392 year, 10,392 years, that is the end of youth. Not necessarily when you turn invisible. That's just the end of youth. Okay. All right. This is the new schema. We're going to get some new playtesting of these ideas, and then we're going to see more math, right? More math, more tweaking. Spoiler, he's not going to be satisfied with this one either. <laughs> this one is, uh, uh, the, the, the previous bowl of porridge uh, was too cold, but this one is too hot, right? So he's not yet found the bowl of porridge that is just right. Um, I don't know that we'll see. I don't know that he ever finds a bowl of porridge that quite suits him perfectly, um, but we're going to come to a new one uh, later on, which I think is the closest we're going to get. Um, but, um, okay. So, um, thank you for joining me. Um, so as I, uh, foreboded, I didn't get through anything like all of my slides. Um, let's say, let's read up through chapter 20 for next time. That would be my ambition. My ambition is to finish part one in two more sessions. Okay. So you can read through the end of part one if you want. There's not all that much left. Um, you read through the end of part one. Why don't you just do that? Just read to the end of part one. And, but we're not going to finish it next time, but we'll probably finish it the time after. Um, but hopefully you can hold it, you know, you can hold it in your head that long. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I definitely want to finish part one before the Christmas break, for sure. Um, okay, so we'll do that. That's the plan. Up through, up through, read through the end of part one. Of course, I should probably not confess that if I had said at the beginning of class, I would have said my ambition is to get through the rest of part one in two more classes, and uh, that's obviously not happening. But I think two more from here, very likely. Very likely. Um, David, yeah, excellent. Yeah, if you just got the book, you, you may have time to catch up. The It's only... What is it? About a hundred and... 168 pages. So in the next two weeks, you read 168 pages, you'll be all caught up. All right. 
thank you guys so much for joining me tonight. I will see it, tune in tomorrow night for Film Film. Uh, come to the Twitch channel, our YouTube channel, broadcasting on these same channels as usual uh, for Film Film tomorrow. Um, we're going to, tomorrow's a big session for Film Film because we're going to be laying the ground. We're going to be deciding what do we cover? What do we include? What do we not include? Um, uh, the Asking the big questions about, uh, about um, season six. So hope you can join us for that tomorrow. Thanks, everybody, and I will, one way or the other, see you guys next week. Thanks. Bye now.